the epistle of James. If we look at the uh, books of the New Testament, of course, we've got the, the Gospels and then Acts kind of tends to be grouped in with those. And then, of course, we've got the 13 epistles that Paul uh, authors, obviously Romans, the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, those three uh, being the, the prison epistles uh, that he wrote from being in prison. And then obviously one and two Thessalonians. And then where we picked up study wise a little while back now, one and two Timothy, which we've gone through Titus, Philemon. Uh, and that brings us on then to this group of eight epistles known as the Hebrew Christian epistles. They were, they were written to the Jewish Christians. Now, of course, the church started uh, with the Jews. The Jews were the ones who formed the early church. There were no Gentiles initially in the church. It was all Jews uh, until we get partway through the book of Acts. And you remember the account where the sheet comes down as Peter's on top of his housetop and he has this vision and uh, he's told to basically go and kill and eat. And, and, and he's confused to start with because the Jewish laws had told him what food was kosher or what they could eat and what they couldn't. And of course, he's sent to Cornelius and suddenly it dawns on Peter what the Lord is saying. The Lord is saying that the gospel is now to go to the Gentiles, who the Jews considered unclean. And so gradually the Gentiles start to be uh, brought into the church. And then we realize, and we'll talk about this in a while, um, that God had this incredible plan. And we read about it particularly uh, in the book of Ephesians, uh, but we read about it throughout the New Testament, this plan that God had to bring in Gentiles into this family, uh, this church that had begun with the disciples in Jerusalem, that had gone to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And we're grateful very much to, to Paul for his ministry, because Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, and of course went to um, much of uh, the areas that were Gentile at that time to what is now modern day Turkey and of course across to Greece, uh, to Rome even. And from there, the, the gospel spread across the world. And so we're so grateful for, for the Lord using Paul in the way he did. But then we have these other individuals, particularly James, Peter and John and Jude, uh, all who write, particularly to Jewish believers. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not applicable to us. It's every bit as applicable. Um, but it just gives us an insight into maybe some of their heart and some of what the, the early church were thinking, feeling and so on. And we can learn an awful lot from these things. So, And then finally, obviously, the New Testament ends with the incredible uh, book of Revelation the revelation that uh, God gave to Jesus. Jesus then gives it to an angel who then passes it on to John and John records it for us. Uh, just an amazing book. And we studied that some years ago. Uh, the notes and all the studies for that are online if you want to, to you know, remind yourself of what we went through there. But obviously we're in now the book of James. Um, the, the name James is our English translation, um, very much from the time of King James, as these things were put into English for us. Um, but the, the name, uh, this individual's name in the Greek is uh, Jacobus. Uh, in French, it's Jacques uh, or Jacques, as I'm sure you're, you're familiar. Lago in Italian, Diego in Spanish. But in the Hebrew, and of course this is a, a Hebrew individual we're speaking of, uh, the name is Jacob or Jacob would be a, probably a better translation. Um, it's the same name, of course, as Jacob in the Old Testament, the one who was referred to, or the, the name means supplanter, heel catcher, tripper up, etc., uh, referred to in Hosea 12 verse 3. Now, before we get into the study, just a little bit of background. There's five James that are mentioned in the New Testament specifically, um, four of which are of real note we'll look at briefly. Um, there was James, the son of Zebedee, of course, the brother of John, John being the one referred to as the beloved disciple, um, John and James, uh, referred to also as the sons of thunder. 
Um, obviously, this James was called to be a, a follower of Jesus very early on. We see that in Mark's Gospel, Mark one nineteen. And again with John and Peter, both of them become part of that inner group of disciples, those three disciples that get the privilege of being uh, um, allowed to witness and be part of certain things that some of the other disciples didn't get to see. Like, for example, the event on the Mount of Transfiguration and so on. Those three disciples seem to be kind of a kind of inner group within the disciples. Um, later that James we know from from history uh, was slain by Herod not long after the time of Pentecost course recorded in the book of Acts as well then we have another James James the son of Alphaeus uh, brother of Judas not Judas Iscariot the, the other Judas um, now he only appears in lists there's no detail specifically given uh, possibly in Mark fifteen forty uh, is the one that's been referred to there as James the Younger or James the Lesser. Uh, in Matthew's passage, which parallels that, is simply referred to as James. So we don't have much information about that individual. Then there's James, who was the father of Judas, and again, not Judas Iscariot. Um, John fourteen twenty two is uh, one of your references. Identified as one of the twelve disciples in Luke six sixteen, and again in Acts one thirteen, uh, and probably the same individual as Matthew speaks of in Matthew ten verse three, and Mark also in Mark three eighteen as Thaddeus. Um, so Thaddeus going also by the name of James. Um, so that's our third one, and the, the one that we're most interested in here, uh, or also just to, to mention here, is that, that James then uh, the one we're looking at is the brother of Jesus, the brother of our Lord. Now, the James, uh, the one we're going to be, the one who is the author of this epistle, uh, was considered by the early church as the son of Mary and Joseph. So again, half brother of Jesus. Uh, it's confirmed by Jerome and Augustine, some of the early church writers. Uh, in Matthew twelve forty six, we see reference again. We'll talk about some of these things a little bit more in a moment. Uh, and then a various other scriptures you can see where he's referred to. Now, it's interesting because this James, again, grew up with Jesus, and yet he was an unbeliever before the resurrection. John 7 verse 5 uh, tells us of that, um, that he didn't recognize, didn't realize who Jesus was. Of course, they grew up in the same family. Um, we'll come back to those uh, things in a minute because they're, they're quite uh, pertinent to this study. But it's interesting that for all of that, that 30 or so years, or however many years, certainly about 25, 26 years, um, I mean, Jesus, we know, was about two when they came back from Egypt. So presumably, uh, James isn't born until some point after that. Um, but uh, spending all that time with Jesus in the same house, and yet never recognizing just who Jesus was until after the resurrection. But what we do find in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, is that Jesus specifically appears to James uh, as, as well as the other disciples, but specifically appearing to James after the resurrection. And clearly that event was such that brought James to a place of recognizing finally who his half-brother, according to the flesh, really truly was. Uh, and of course, following that point, he becomes a believer, a follower of his Lord by that point. Now, we are told in Scripture... The James, uh, again, the author of this epistle, uh, becomes a very prominent and outstanding leader uh, in the church in Jerusalem, the, the early church as it was being established. We see that very much in Acts chapter 15. We'll probably make mention of that again in a while, uh, referred to again in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. Um, we know from 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, that he was married. Um, interestingly, we also know that when Peter was released from prison, 
recorded in Acts 12, 17, uh, he instructed them to go and tell James. Paul also reported to James when he arrived at Jerusalem, which again just gives you an indication of the, the respect that people had for James. His name was used by the Judaizers, uh, those who were trying to encourage the Christians to come back under the Jewish law. They arrived uh, down um, uh, in Antioch and they started saying that they'd come from James, as if saying we've got the authority of James behind us. Um, James had already uh, disavowed them, saying that, you know, or basically uh, the message they were bringing was not endorsed by him. They were bringing the idea that we must keep under the law, obey the law and so on. And uh, Acts fifteen twenty four again is where James makes it very, very clear that the Gentiles who have this grace and this liberty don't need to be brought under the law. And in fact, he goes on to say that actually the Jews, the Jewish believers, the Jewish Christians will be saved in just the same way as the Gentiles, that the law, as Paul writes so uh, comprehensively in Galatians, we'll be picking this up this week in our study in Galatians, um, Paul writes comprehensively that the law effectively is null and void now for the believer. The purpose of the law was to bring us to Christ, to, to be our, our schoolmaster. Uh, the word in the Greek is pedagogue. It's a chaperone, someone that would look after a child and bring them to a place of maturity. Well, that's exactly what the Lord does. It brings us to that point, very much as uh, Adrian was alluding to in his prayer a short while ago. You know, there's people in this world, they think they're good. They think they have everything they need. What the Lord does is show us that we're not good, that we haven't got, uh, we haven't kept God's righteous standard. And so these Judaizers that come down, trying to say they come with James' authority, uh, clearly that's rebutted from the, the text that we have. Now, we know that uh, the book or the epistle of James was written within 10 years or so of the resurrection, um, as around, certainly by about 40, 42 AD. I just want to read to you, uh, if I may, just from uh, Bill Cooper's uh, Authenticity of the New Testament, uh, because this is just quite fascinating as we just look at these things. Um, Bill Cooper says this, he says, uh, this letter of James has always been a problem for the critics. Most will tell you that it cannot possibly be genuinely from James the Apostle because it must have been written after the year AD 70, though they could never tell you why. Whereas James was executed by order of Herod Agrippa in AD 42. How passing, uh, sorry, uh, how passing strange then that here we have his letter among the Qumran Cave 7 fragments. So what Bill Cooper's already done in his book is show that in the Cave 7 at Qumran, where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, in Cave 7, there was found a number of fragments of New Testament books. Now, that's not often spoken about. Very fairly seldom is very, it's not published. Um, Bill Cooper just carries on there and says, one hallmark of the letter's genuineness is the similarity between its opening address and that of the letter sent out to the Gentiles by the apostles in Jerusalem. James was notably the head of the Jerusalem congregation, which is what we said, and just quoting from Acts 15.23, and they wrote letters by them after this manner, the apostles and elders and brethren send greetings unto the brethren, which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. And he says, those who plump for a late date of composition... Also forget to notice that James is the only writer of the New Testament to refer to a greeting of Christians as a synagogue instead of as a church. That word's usage for a gathering of Christians must have fallen out of use within the very earliest days of the church, and it thus stands as a very clear hallmark of an early date for James. 
But the real clincher, because it demolishes every previous uh, notion of the critics, is again its presence in Cave 7. You can dream up all sorts of objections regarding words, sentences and paragraphs, but there is no gainsaying simple archaeological facts. Its presence in Cave 7 means it could not have been written after AD 70, and in fact we know from the date of his execution that the letter of James was written at some time before AD 42. Most likely it was in the mid-30s when Christians could still call themselves a synagogue. That much is rendered irrefutable. So I just share that with you because it's it's good to know that what we have uh, is not some later fabrication or uh, work of uh, man. This is God's word. This is given to us uh, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what we have clearly is a record written very, very close to the events that are really spoken of, meaning specifically the the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Paul classes that as the gospel. This this letter, this epistle, really builds on those things. So we know that this is a a, a solid, a reliable uh, letter, a document that we have now. William MacDonald and uh, his commentary says this: he was notably uh, he was notable as a very Jewish Christian, uh, extremely strict in lifestyle. And again, we'll see that come through in some of the things and the expressions he uses. Uh, he says many parallels with Matthew's gospel uh, with respect to themes. And I just want to show you this because I think this is just quite fascinating. What you do with it, I'll leave it to you. Um, but if we go to look at uh, James and then in parallel Matthew, you can see there that they both open up or they both have this section dealing with adversity. Following on, there's a section that goes on to prayer. And then the idea of having a single eye, what we focus on, what we're uh, looking at, what we allow into our mind through the eye. Uh, there's a section on wealth and particularly the abuse of wealth, a section then on wrath, the law, uh, the idea of a mere profession of uh, our belief rather than an actual outward living of it. Uh, a reference to the royal law, and we'll see that as we go through uh, the study itself. The idea of mercy is then built on the, uh, the, the comparison between faith and works and the fact that you can't have faith if there are no works. It doesn't, it shows your faith is not a genuine faith. Uh, the idea of the root and the fruit. If you're connected to the root, you will bear fruit. And that idea comes out in both James and in Matthew. Um, the idea of true wisdom, the idea of the peacemaker, the judging others uh, issue is raised in both. Um, the uh, rusted uh, treasures, uh, the way that the world looks to, to hold on to things. And yet, of course, we know that those things just, just perish. They fade away. There's, there's nothing that the world has of any lasting value. And then finally, uh, the idea of oaths uh, mentioned as well. So just an interesting comparison. I don't know what you do with that. Uh, but there's a number of the books in the Bible that model each other, that parallel in different ways. Of course, you're familiar, I'm sure, with the book of Joshua being a model of the book of Revelation in so many ways. So we see a number of these kind of little pairings, uh, just kind of hints and ideas that show us that the Holy Spirit is behind all of these things. So if we just kind of look at an overview of the epistle itself, James is going to show us the importance of conduct over creed. Okay, so the way we actually live uh, as opposed to just what we profess. Then the difference between behavior and belief. It's okay to believe something, but do we behave like we truly mean uh, and live like what we say we believe? And then, of course, the deed over doctrine so these are the kind of ideas that come through it's very much the theme is this idea of of being very honest very real very transparent in our faith as a christian with nothing to hide with nothing to censor 
James's epistle uh, is intensely practical for the Christian, uh, growing in knowledge and grace, which obviously we are all in that position. We're all growing. So this is a great lesson for us in terms of how we should be living our lives. And of course, it is a very fitting follow on from Hebrews, which gives the why of Christian living. So Hebrews tells us, you know, why we should live the Christian life. It speaks, of course, of, of Jesus being better and greater, as we've gone through recently, than, than obviously than the high priest and Aaron and Moses, uh, better than the law and so on. And then we're given those great promises that we need to hold on to, uh, the faith that we need to follow. So Hebrews lays all that out as we've gone through uh, this year so far. But then James is going to take it on from there and give us the how. So we know why we should live the Christian life. We, we've been told of some of the warnings and dangers if we don't. But now James gives us a real practical instruction as to how we should live this life. If we look at an overview of the book, uh, really we see that, that start, an introduction, um, the endurance of faith. We're going to have the uh, comments and verses that speak about the outward trials and the inward temptations. You know, we all face this. We all struggle with these things. Uh, we all have the same kind of challenges that we face in the trials. And those trials, we can't preempt. We don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next. Of course, we've said a number of times recently that we kind of all expect tomorrow to be the same as today. Well, we've suddenly been thrown into a situation with COVID-19 that we now realize that tomorrow doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the same as today. And of course, this is what the Bible teaches, that there is coming upon the earth times of great anguish, great trial. Uh, we're just seeing the birth pangs of those things right now. Then the next kind of major theme is really the tests and the genuineness of our faith. This is like a spiritual health check in many ways for us. We look at our response to the word of God in the latter part of this first chapter. Our response to the social distinctions between those who are wealthy, those who are not wealthy, the rich, the poor. How do we respond and act uh, when we see somebody who's not as well off? Do we treat them differently to someone who maybe is very wealthy, who maybe could be an advantage to us personally? Well, well, James will deal with that uh, directly. Then, of course, the evidence of good works to accompany faith. You know, if faith is genuine, there will be works. You cannot have true faith without works works have to go alongside and uh, that's a, a major theme that we see in this uh, epistle the importance of self-control for a believer you know we talk about this from time to time but self-control is so important and uh, james will again deal with that issue and then of course our relationship to the world how do we view the world how should we react and respond to the world and then finally really it's the foundation of prayer for a believer and it is indeed a foundation. If we have a praying life, it will impact everything about us. It will impact our character, our thoughts, the way we deal with trials and temptations and problems. You know, it's such a, an important seal that we get at the end of this book uh, that really just brings it all together. So that's kind of an overview. Um, James, of course, uses nature to illustrate spiritual truth. We'll see that uh, about 30 times in these five short chapters, just allusions to the natural world and how we can draw uh, from that. Again, just in a sense, painting pictures that make it easy for us to understand what he's trying to communicate. Uh, and also there are frequent references to the law in this letter. Now, we mentioned this a little while ago in uh, chapter one, verse 25. The law is referred to as the perfect law. Of course, the law was perfect. Uh, we know from um, Psalm 19, I believe it is, that you know the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul is what we're told. The law is perfect in as much as it sets out God's perfect, righteous standard. 
Okay, so that's why it's perfect. It provides a way of being right with God. The problem with the law is that none of us can keep it. So none of us can get right with God by obeying the law. But then it's also referred to as the royal law in chapter 2, verse 8, and then in 2, verse 12, as the law of liberty. So we'll we'll speak about these things as we move forward. Uh, but James doesn't teach uh, that his readers are under the law for salvation or as a rule of life, but rather that portions of the law are cited as instruction in righteousness for those who are under grace. And that's the important thing to understand, because Jesus said that he hadn't come to abolish the law, but he'd come to fulfill it. And sometimes we, we kind of put the law to one side thinking well, we're under grace now, so the law has no purpose. No, the law still has tremendous value. We're just not to be under the legalistic uh, element of the law. We are saved by grace, not by what we do. We're not saved by keeping the letter of the law. And yet everything within the law was there for our learning, just as we're told of every other scripture. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, as we're told, uh, by, as Paul tells Timothy. You know, it's there for our instruction. Paul, in the book of Romans, tells us that the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, and that includes the law very much. The law is there, and there's so many practical things in the law that we do well to take heed of, and we'll talk about some of those things as we go through the study. Well, it's interesting, just in a short five verse, uh, sorry, five chapter book, uh, a number of themes come out. Brethren uh, is mentioned to alluded to 15 times uh, in this uh, very short work, but then faith also 15 times, works 13 times and wisdom four. So you get an idea of these repetitive ideas and themes that James keeps referring to. It's been said that the epistle of James is the most authoritarian letter in the New Testament. Uh, what do we mean by that? Well, quite simply that James issues instructions just repeatedly throughout the, the whole epistle. It's one instruction and command after another, you know, and probably more so than any of the other New Testament writers. Paul does many of these uh, things, but uh, James really, in, in these few verses, in 108 verses, uh, there's about 54 commands. There's certainly 50 verbs in the, the Greek, which are instructive in telling us to do something. Uh, they, they require response. They require action. So James very much, this is a letter telling us as believers how we should be living our lives. So again, very practical because, you know, sometimes we're a little bit uh, shy at speaking to each other on spiritual things. Sometimes we hold back and we don't want to offend each other. We don't want to say, you know, are you living in a godly way? Are you, is your life pure? You know, are, are you allowing things into your heart or your mind that you shouldn't? Sometimes we don't challenge each other on those things. And, and probably we should do that more of that because, you know, it's only out of love and care for each other that we grow together. Or James doesn't hold back. James doesn't care about upsetting or offending because there's a bigger picture. And that is our relationship with God and, of course, our salvation. And we'll see alluded to here as well the rewards that we were looking at and talked about in the book of Hebrews. We'll see that again dealt with as we go into this study. Now, back in Matthew chapter 13, we read there uh, this statement, uh, speaking of Jesus, questioning who he was. They say, is this not, sorry, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James, as he mentioned there, and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? So it's interesting because we know from this verse that after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary had at least six other children. Okay, so Mary gave birth to another six children at least because we're told sisters plural. Now, there has to be at least two. Uh, it could have been more than that. 
So Jesus grew up in this family with six siblings around him as he's growing up. We'll come back to that. I want to just just, just think about that in, in, in a while. Uh, but James is always mentioned first, which would indicate that, G, that James was the eldest, of course, after Jesus. So he was like the oldest brother in the family apart from Jesus. And of course, Jesus must have stood out in that family. Um, we'll talk about that uh, in just a moment. Um, there's a few other comments to make, but let's jump into the text, jump into the study itself. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter one and uh, we'll read together. OK, so James chapter one, uh, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting. Now, let me go back again just to give you the the breakdown of what we have in this uh, this summary as with James gives us this introduction. First of all, this the introduction we're looking at, we're going to go on to talk about the joy in trials, being single minded, being content, enduring temptation and again, being doers, not just hearers. So he's writing, as we'll talk about in a second, to the 12 tribes. And these are the things he's going to specifically start off by talking to them about. Again, having joy in all the trials and tribulations and challenges we face. Again, having that single mind, uh, being content and enduring temptation. It's interesting, as we look at this, that James doesn't start off and say, James, the brother of Jesus. He doesn't speak of his own uh, position or, or try and boast in, in the flesh. Uh, in the same way that Jude, the book of Jude, also one of Jesus's brethren according to the flesh. Uh, if you just look at the opening of the book of Jude, Jude starts there in a very humble way. He doesn't say Jude, the brother of Jesus. Uh, he simply says this, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. How different it must have been for the brothers of Jesus according to the flesh to suddenly come to that place of realizing that he was the Messiah of Israel, the one that David and all the prophets of the Old Testament had spoken about and said was going to be coming. And they, for the best part of their lives, had grown up in a house, in a family with him, and yet they hadn't realized who he was. And now none of them, certainly James and Jude, they don't play on this. They don't make it seem as if you know they have some special entitlement. Uh, in fact, we'll see that they're, they're, they're driven, both of them, to lives of service. It's interesting. One of the titles that was given to James, I'm sure some of you are familiar or aware, was Old Camel Knees. Now, legend has it that when eventually he was uh, martyred, when he was killed, uh, they couldn't quite straighten his legs out. Apparently, his legs had become so bent, so used to praying that he'd worn calluses onto his knees uh, by spending so many hours and uh, so much time in prayer. And you kind of can understand a little bit for James why that would be the case. Having grown up with Jesus in that family, you know, the, being the oldest one, I mean, it's unlike we know from Scripture that Mary and Joseph weren't wealthy. It's very clear because when they have to go to the temple to offer their uh, offering to the Lord after Jesus is born, they offer two turtle doves. Now, the law required that they were uh, to offer uh, a lamb, but they couldn't offer a lamb. So they offer these two turtle doves. Um, it just shows they didn't have a huge amount of wealth at that point. Now, it's unlikely that when they were back up in Nazareth and they have this family of at least seven children, including Jesus, that they had a really big kind of apartment, a big place to uh, rooms for all the children. So there's no doubt some of the children shared rooms together, which would probably mean that Jesus and James, James again being uh, the next oldest after Jesus, they'd have probably shared a room. And just imagine that for James, growing up in that environment, seeing Jesus, seeing his character, 
you know, uh, you, you can imagine as well, um, Joseph and Mary at times saying to James, oh, why can't you be like Jesus? Why can't you behave like he is? Because, of course, we know of Jesus that he, he didn't sin. There was no sin in his life. And that means even from a child. There must have been a real challenge. You know, um, my sister and I have this often a uh, little bit of banter that when we were growing up, she was always the one that got in trouble. Uh, I was just smart enough to get out of the way before before the, the blow came down. You know, if, if something went wrong, I, I just started to sneak, sneak away craftily. And, and my sister was left there, you know, nursing the problem. Um, so, uh, you know, but you imagine what it's like for James. Jesus never being told off for anything wrong. You know, of course, no doubt, Joseph and Mary would have disciplined and that had been part of his education, uh, part of any any godly family. Of course, Proverbs gives us great instruction on bringing children up. But there'd have been nothing to really uh, rebuke Jesus over. There'd have been nothing to tell him off for. And how must it James have felt? You can understand partly why there may have been an element of resentment sometimes, why the brothers of Jesus certainly didn't, uh, until after the resurrection, acknowledge who he was. Maybe they just didn't understand. But this is a situation. But he says, again, the opening words, James, a servant of God. I, I love that. He says, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, doesn't say my brother, according to the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He acknowledges just who this individual is. Jesus is far more than just James's brother. And he knows that at this point. And then he says that his audience, the people he's writing to, to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad, greeting. Now, of course, we know that in the early days of Jerusalem, um, as persecution started to rise, particularly from the uh, the Jewish authorities, that the believers started to spread out. Of course, initially to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Uh, that's where the gospel was to go. Um, but we know that many believers ended up moving to Babylon and to other places um, and so on. So, these are the ones to whom James is writing. I just want to put to bed a very quick myth here. There is an idea that people talk about the 12 lost tribes. You may have heard this. You may have come across it. Uh, and they'll tell you that during the time of the kingdom in Israel, when the kingdom divided, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, was made up of comprising 10 tribes and the southern kingdom, Judah, two tribes. And then those 10 tribes of the north ended up getting dissipated in the nations around the world. And they're spoken of as being the 10 lost tribes. Now, it's, it's not found in scripture at all. It's an idea um, that sadly uh, got propagated. But we know from that time when Jeroboam uh, and Rehoboam, Jeroboam goes up into the north, becomes king there, and Rehoboam, the son of Solomon in the south, the, the godly uh, individuals in the north moved down to Jerusalem and the ungodly ones from Jerusalem and from Judea moved up north. So we see this intermingling. Uh, of course, the tribe or the northern tribes is often referred to uh, the 10 tribes geographically that were taken captive in about 722 by uh, Assyria eventually got uh, swallowed up by Babylon as Babylon then subdues Assyria. So all of those that were under the Assyrian yoke then become uh, under the Babylonian yoke. And we know that there's about 50,000 of all tribes that return to the land of Israel, to Jerusalem, to the whole area, uh, after the Babylonian captivity. And we know a number of uh, sites. I mean, Paul the Apostle was from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, we know that um, uh, Anna in the, the New Testament, as Jesus is born, was from the tribe of Asher. So th there's no uh, there's, there's no scriptural foundation to say that those ten lost tribes. Um, God knows where they are. That you know, and of course in Revelation we find that there's 12,000 from each tribe that will be sealed and used for a very specific purpose uh, in Revelation chapter 7. So 
That's the 12 tribes scattered aboard. He says, greeting. And then he says, my brethren. This is one of these uses of the word brethren. My brothers. Interestingly, that he's grown up as a brother. He understands that kind of brotherly relationship. That's the kind of relationship he's speaking of now. We are part of a family. And he, of course, knew that he was part of the family that, that Jesus had been part of. Well, actually, no, nothing's changed. We are all now part of that family that Jesus is part of. Okay, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have a perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. What a challenging few verses for us, because do we truly count it joy when we fall into diverse temptations? Well, a lot of that depends upon our mindset. It depends upon the way we look at things. You see, if we look at things from a godly perspective, if we understand that God is in control, then we recognize that when we fall into various trials, we have to understand that that they are God ordained. Okay, we're not talking about temptation. Okay, uh, the words the word there, temptation, doesn't mean temptation in the sense of uh, of sin. Well, we'll get to that when we get down to verse um, twelve and verse thirteen and so on in a short while. But the idea is when we fall into various trials, now we've used this example, this analogy before that, you know, if you had that audience before God, before the world was created and God said to you, I want you to write out your plan for your life. I want you to go away, get a piece of paper, as many sheets of paper as you need, write out your plan, everything you want for your life, you know, who you want to marry, where you want to live, the number of children you want to have, the kind of success you would like in your occupation, all the things that you think are important in life, you know, your, your, your social group, everything. And you get to go and write all those things down. And then you go back to God and God says, okay, that's your plan for your life. This is my plan for your life. Choose one. You know, in that situation, who of us wouldn't say we choose God's because God knows the end from the beginning. God's no, God knows what is best for us. Of course, you know, as a child, if you say to them, what do you want to eat? Chances are it's going to be chocolate. It's going to be ice cream. It's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that don't, doesn't really provide the nutrients the body needs. You know, as a parent, it's important that we give our children a balanced diet. Well, God does the same for us. And sometimes we go through trials and that's part of the, the diet in the sense that God sets for us so that we would be, as it says here, perfect and complete. OK, a perfect and entire wanting nothing that we're not lacking in our lives, not lacking for maturity and how to deal with problems and challenges. You know, the things that we go through, the things that the Lord allows us to go through, if we understand them from a godly standpoint, we'll realize they're all filtered by God. God doesn't allow anything into our life that he hasn't filtered already. So we need to be able to go through trials, not necessarily enjoying it. And let's just get the comparison here between the joy that we're supposed to have and pleasure. Okay. We tend to think sometimes that, that this is versus saying, you know, you should find it pleasurable. No, no, that's not what it's saying, but we should find a joy in it, recognizing that God is working through this. And it might not be fun at the time. I mean, let me just give you a very brief, you know, and you've had no number of examples. I'm sure you could think of yourself. Yesterday I was doing some DIY. And it was quite grueling, uh, what I was doing. Um, but you know what? When the job was done, I look back and I'm pleased that, that, that it was accomplished. Uh, and sometimes we go through things that as we go through them, it's not enjoyable. We don't actually enjoy the process. But when you get to the end result, you look back, you think, you know, what? I'm glad I went through that. I'm glad that effort was put in because I see the result. Well, how much more so in the spiritual life? Let's uh, carry on because then it goes on. And says that, oh, do just add as well that the trying of your faith 
Notice that it is a challenge to our faith. And that often repeated verse of, of comment by Chuck Misler that, you know, every day the Lord will find you a new way of asking you the same question. And that question is, do you trust me? And God will keep asking us that question. So verse five, we go on. Uh, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. And let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, this this next section just talks about the, the way we should be, effectively, as Paul puts it, of sound mind. Okay, if we do lack wisdom in any regard, on any issue, on any situation, in any decision we're going to make, even in the midst of a trial, ask God. God has said, please come talk to me. Come fellowship with me. Come spend time. You know, what must it have been like for James growing up in that family with Jesus, being able to ask him all sorts of questions as a younger brother would to an older brother? You know, we see it in the family here. You know, the, the younger siblings will ask the older siblings questions. You know, and there's a natural learning and development that's, that's part of that, which is a very wonderful thing. The, the idea, again, uh, here is that we shouldn't be, uh, as it says, tossed to and fro. Uh, we, uh, Paul speaks about that, uses that expression, with every wind of doctrine. You know, and it's the same here in the things that we ask. We shouldn't be uh, unclear. Let him ask in faith. That's not faith which is a, a wishful thinking. That's faith which is confident that God is going to respond and act in regard to the prayers that we bring before him. Nothing wavering. It says, for he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. And it says, you know, we're not going to think receive things from the Lord if we don't have that confidence in who he is. You know, in that great chapter of faith that we looked at in Hebrews and Hebrews 11, it says that if we go to God, we must believe that he is. You know, we must believe that God is God. And if God is God, God is capable of doing whatever we bring to him. You know, how many times are we surprised when God provides for us? And yet really this verse is saying is that when we go to, to God in prayer, we shouldn't be uh, surprised. It's like the anecdote, and I'm sure you've heard this one many a time, that the, the, the village that had been praying for rain for such a long time and they hadn't had any rain, so they decided they were going to walk up to the, to the top of the local mountain and they all kind of trake up to the top of this mountain praying that God would bring rain, but only one young girl took an umbrella with them. You know, it's that idea, you know, when we go to God and pray, do we genuinely believe he's going to hear us and answer us? Well, James did. James knew that this one he was praying to was the one that he'd grown up with. He'd seen Jesus's life. He'd seen the way that Jesus had conducted himself. No doubt James had asked Jesus for things at times. Would you do this for me? Could you do that? James had never been let down by Jesus as a brother. He'd seen Jesus provide or do whatever was necessary in various situations and James is saying now, yeah, I know this one that we're talking to. I know the one to whom we're petitioning. We can trust him. He says, you know, how, how crazy that we would waver in our faith when we have a relationship where we know who it is to whom we go and ask. Let's uh, carry on. We pick up verse nine. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that is exalted. All right, if, if you're a believer and you don't have a lot, if you're not of a high social standing or position, well, guess what? You are a king and a priest in Jesus Christ. You're exalted to a fantastic position that maybe the world doesn't understand or recognize, but you know what? That doesn't matter because 
You have been already brought into God's family. You've been made brethren with Jesus. You know, let me just read to you because it it is so apt what John tells us in uh, 1 John. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we uh, know that when we uh, he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You know, we've been called the brethren of Jesus. I mean, James is saying this, you know, that we have this privilege. If you are of low degree, is what James is saying, we'll rejoice because you have been given this incredible position. Now, he then goes on and says the next verse, but the rich... In that he's made low. Okay, so rejoice for those who are low degree that you can be exalted. But if you're rich, you know, rejoice that you're no longer the the top of the pile. You're no longer uh, the king of the castle. You are now brought down and you are the same as your brethren. So wherever we are, whether you're low, whether you're high, you know, the, the beautiful thing about our relationship with Jesus is we are all on the same level. You know, there is no bond or free Jew, Gentile, male, female. I mean, the world goes crazy trying to understand these these things. And, you know, um, there, there was an article, there was an interview the other day with, a, I forget the lady's name, that's just come back from the space station. And they were interviewing her and saying, you know, do you think it was really important that, you know, you're a woman and you're in space? Uh, and the fact that there was, there was her and another lady on the, the space shuttle, they did the first all-female spacewalk. And they made such a thing of it. And I'm thinking, well, you know what? You're actually kind of undoing your whole argument you're trying to create. You're trying to say that women should have equality. Well, you're actually highlighting that this issue of making it, uh, it's almost negative the way they're portraying it. That It's surprising you've been given this opportunity. Well, you know, there's none of that with our relationship with Jesus, whether we're male, whether we're female, we're one in Christ. No, no, no gender has superiority. We are one, you know, whether you're, you're bond or free, you know, whether you're, uh, somebody who's of low estate here or somebody who's rich, we are all on the same level. This beautiful simplicity about our relationship with Jesus. There is no, uh, nobody higher than us. You know, we'd have to go to a man in order to get to God or some religious systems have it. You know, there, there is one mediator between God and man and that's Jesus. And then we have this another little uh, anecdote from nature. Uh, we're told here uh, again, but the rich, uh, in that he's made low, because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. You know, all our wealth, all our riches of this world, it will go. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flowers thereof faileth, and the grace of the fashion of it perishes. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Just a reminder that, you know, if you have been blessed, if you have wealth, if you have all those things in this world, well, don't start holding on to them because they don't mean anything. In the light of eternity, they are really just so inconsequential, insignificant. There's a a teacher, I was a, a Bible teacher uh, by the name of Francis Chan, some of you may have heard of. Uh, he does a really, really good talk. Uh, it's on the internet. Uh, and he just gets a, a really, really long piece of rope. And he kind of just stretches it across the stage, the platform where he's speaking. And the end of the bit of rope is just colored in in red pen. And he, he just gets in and gets everybody to look at it. And he says, right, he said, imagine this rope is eternity. That little bit here that's cuddled at the end, that's now. That's where we are right now. And in comparison to eternity, it's nothing. And he said, and yet all of us spend all of our time focusing on this little bit and not thinking about eternity. And he, he makes the point really well. Well, James here is saying the same thing. You know, don't get attached to the things of this world. Don't, don't make them your goal and your aim because they will fade away. They perish. 
And then we get into verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Now, it speaks about overcoming temptation. And we're going to come back to the idea of temptation in a moment. Uh, Before we do that, though, I want to just take you through uh, just a few comments here about these crowns that are referred to, because he specifically has spoken of the crown of life. Okay, and we're told the Lord has promised them to those that love him. Okay, and the, the condition is overcoming or enduring temptation. So there's a reason that's given to us here for overcoming and enduring temptation is because if we do so, we will get to receive one of these crowns. Now, let me just take you through. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're told of the judgment seat or the beamer seat of Christ. Romans 14.10 also makes allusion. And it basically, it's an award ceremony for the saints. When we get to heaven, and 1 Corinthians 3 gives us the details of this as well. Uh, you know, we're, we're given this great moment before God's throne where we are judged, but not in regard to sin. Sin's not part of the equation. It's how we've lived as Christians. That's the issue. And our deeds will be judged. Okay, The work that we've done, whether good or bad. Now, salvation is already assured because we've been saved already by the work of Jesus, by the completed work on the cross. So salvation is assured, but rewards are not assured. Okay. Now, we know, of course, because in Matthew we're told that where our treasure has been is going to be the key to what rewards we receive. In Second John verse 8, it says, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. It's saying that there is a possibility of losing out on the things that we've worked for, the things that we've uh, been blessed with or the treasure we've been putting up in heaven. We can, we can forfeit those things. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says there, I therefore so run, not as uncertainty, so fight I not as one that beats the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself I myself should be a castaway. Rejected, reparate is the idea, or having nothing. Yeah, Paul clearly makes this point, and most of the New Testament, Testament writers say this, that you know we could lose out on this heavenly reward. Now, these are the crowns specifically. There are other rewards alluded to, but these are specific rewards that are mentioned in Scripture now. The crown of incorruption, the crown of life, the one that we're speaking about here, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of glory, and the crown of righteousness. Let me just take you through them very quickly. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, Know ye not that they which run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. The idea there, uh, the, in the, with the Ithaman Games um, that they had each year was very much like the Olympic Games. You know, you get that kind of crown, that reward. But Paul says, you know, the, the ones that are running a race on earth is, is perishable. It doesn't last, but the crown we received will last forever. He says, No, you're not that they which run in a race all run, but one receives a prize. So run that you may obtain. And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. It talks about being disciplined. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, like those crowns that you would get at the Isthmus Games and so on. They would just perish and fade away. But we, for an incorruptible crown, a crown of life, we're looking at here. Okay, we just read the verse again, but blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he's tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. First Corinthians 10, it says, There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. 
But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, we're going to talk a bit more in temptation in a moment, but this is the, the second crown. The next one, the third, the crown of rejoicing from First Thessalonians. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our joy, are our glory and joy. This is a, a crown that seems to be rewarded for those that preach the gospel, that bring others to the Lord. The joy of seeing the lost found. Again, that joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. You know, and there may be a multitude when we're raptured, when we're caught up in the air to meet the Lord, the, this moment when we get to receive these, these rewards. We'll look around us and we'll see those that we have influenced by our comments, by our prayers, by the things that we've said, by our lifestyles. People that we maybe didn't even realize that we'd impacted their lives. And then there's the crown of glory in First Peter, which is specifically given to uh, the leadership uh, within the church. It says, the elders which are among you, I exhort who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God, which is among you. That's the primary task of pastors to feed the flock, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And then this verse, verse four, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. What a privilege you'll be to receive that. And then finally, the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Now, what a, a great uh, reminder here that if we are looking forward to, if we're longing and excited about the Lord's return, there is awaiting us this crown of righteousness. Now, all of these are important because they speak about our conduct, the lives we're living as Christians. You don't just go out to earn a crown, but as the way we live our lives, we're rewarded for these things. Now, the question is then, well, we're going to get all these crowns. Let's say, you know, we get three of them or whatever. You know, do you spend eternity bragging about how well you've done? Is that how it will be, that there'll be some sort of hierarchy, you know, that those with five crowns get to sit over there, those with only two crowns have to sit over there? Well, no, that's not how it's going to be. And this is why. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4, we are given this beautiful picture that John records for us of what it will be like when the church is raptured and standing before the throne. And we've spoke, spoken of those beasts that give glory and honour, these heavenly creatures, and thanks to him that sat on the throne who lives forever and ever. And then we're told the four and twenty elders. Now that's representative of the church. All the New Testament saints, twelve um, twi- tribes of Israel represented and twelve um, uh, uh, apostles representing the church. So there's 24 in total uh, in Corinthians, sorry, in Chronicles, 24 was the number that represented the entire priesthood, which is why this is used. Um, four and 20 elders fall down before him, the son of the throne. This is the church. We're falling down before the Lord, worshipping him that lives forever and ever. And we're told and they cast their crowns before the throne. What crowns? Well, the crowns that we've earned for the lifestyle, for the way we've lived our lives as believers. We throw them before the throne. Now, Important note, because Corinthians, uh, 1 Chronicles uh, 29 says this, Both riches and honour come from thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thy hand is power and might, and in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thy own have we given thee. Now, of course, this is prayer of David at the dedicating of the, the things that were being brought for the temple to build the temple. 
which Solomon later went on to do. But it just reminds us that actually, you know, all that we have, our walk uh, with the Lord is only by his grace. If we earn any crowns at all, it's by his grace. But of course, we have a choice. We have a, uh, uh, we have the freedom to choose how we want to live as believers, whether we sow to the flesh or the spirit. So once we receive these crowns, we get to cast them before the throne. Okay, Revelation 19 then tells us that when Jesus returns at the second coming, just read verse 12, his eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. What crowns? The crowns that you and I will have given to Jesus to say thank you for all that he's done for us. This is the only thing in scripture that I can see where we actually have the opportunity to give a gift to Jesus Christ to say thank you. And it's dependent upon the way we live right now in these days. Whether we are, again, sowing to the spirit or sowing to the flesh. So again, we're rewarded with crowns. We cast our crowns before the throne and Jesus will receive them and wear them at his coming, the second coming. However, great our reward is that Jesus will receive the glory. That's the important thing. And we're not going to brag throughout eternity. Once the crowns are cast down, we'll all be the same. Because none of us will have a crown. We've given it all back to Jesus. And he's the one that's glorified. We are just sinners saved by grace. And this is, our, as I said, one opportunity to give something back to Jesus. And that opportunity is today, is tomorrow, is every day that we live our lives. Now, again, it's the significance of this is representative of every time that you wanted to quit the race. Every time it's got hard, you thought, I can't do this anymore. Or representative of every time you face temptation. And actually, you've endured because you recognize that there's a chance to say thank you to Jesus by resisting that temptation. It's representative of every time you've had the opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus. That crown of rejoicing. Spurgeon said this, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Quite a poignant quote. But it's also representative of your faithfulness in ministry and representative of your looking for his return. These are the things that should be hallmarks of our lives as Christians. So let me give you this again. The crown of incorruption is a disciplined Christian life, no compromise, running to win. The crown of life is overcoming temptations, the crown of rejoicing, winning souls for Christ. The crown of glory is being faithful in the ministry that God has called you to. And the crown of righteousness, well, again, it's looking for his coming. It's being sanctified, set apart. You know, I, I've used this example a number of times. But when my parents were away, when I was older, you know, my later teenage years, my sister and I, if, if you know, they'd been away for a week, the house typically could get in a state of, you know, uh, disrepair and we'd have to kind of tidy things up. And you knew if they were coming back tomorrow, we have to tidy today. We have to get it ready. Well, that's the idea that we know if we're looking forward to Jesus coming back, if we're excited about his return, it's going to affect our lifestyle. It's going to affect the way we live. We want to be living ready for him to return. Okay, let's uh, let's go on to uh, temptations. So let me read the next section and then we'll come back to these comments. Um, so it then says, verse uh, 13, uh, it says, Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither, so evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. This is really important. And when that lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. He says, do not err, my beloved brethren. And then he goes on. Uh, we'll come back to, to that. We'll pick up there in a second. But let's just talk about this issue of temptation. Such an important topic for us to understand. Firstly, it tells us that temptations will come. 
Okay, so we are not going to be immune from temptations. It's going to happen. Even Jesus himself was tempted in Luke 4, of course, the temptation in the wilderness. But what we are told is a blessing is promised if we endure them. And we are expected to endure them. God will allow things into our lives, temptations, to see how we respond to them. But it's important to note here that God is not the source of the temptation. Okay, God is the source often of the trials that we spoke about in verse 2 and 3. Those those come from the Lord. The Lord allows the trials and the challenges, but not the temptations. Okay, God isn't the source of those. Isaiah 45 verse 7 is your reference for that. Um, and they are, as I say, different from the trials. So don't blame God for temptations. Okay, but also note that the devil is also not the primary source of temptations. Oh, how easy it is for us as Christians to blame the devil. Oh, the devil made me do it. You know, and we use those kind of expressions sometimes. Um, but God nor the devil are the source of temptations. We're told here very clearly that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So our hearts and minds are fertile soil where temptations can grow. And this is why what may be a temptation to one may not be so for another. We are commanded to not go astray or to wander very clearly throughout Scripture. So many verses that give us this. Temptations will result in death progressively. Okay, Luke, let me read this again. In verse 15. Then when the lust has conceived. Now notice this. You, 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 as parents, as, as adults, we understand that, that once conception has taken place, there is a natural process that will follow that will end up in a child being born. Okay. When lust is conceived, it will bring forth sin. It's a natural process. It, as, as, as much as anything in the natural world, this is a spiritual law. But when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. Not it might bring forth on some occasions. It will bring forth. When lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And then look at the danger here. Because sin, when it is finished will bring forth death. Something in you will die spiritually when you give in to temptation. When that lust and bit whatever, let you fill in the blanks, you know your own hearts. When that lust takes root, when it takes hold, it's going to bring forth sin. Sin It's going to bring forth all, all sorts of sin. It'll bring forth lying. It'll bring forth all sorts of other things that we try and hide from other people and even from ourselves. But that, when it's full grown, it will bring forth death. Okay. And again, we need to understand that temptations uh, will often start as something quite innocuous. You know, there's a, a great song by Casting Crowns called Slow Fade. We've mentioned it a few times, actually, I think. Um, but the lyrics of the song are really good. And it just speaks about the journey from your heart to your mind um, is not as great as you think it is. You know, we we sometimes think that we can look at something or indulge in something or take part in something, watch something, see something, hear something, whatever, and it's not going to affect us. We think we're immune to it sometimes. But, you know, it's a very, very short jump from those things. And we're told here very clearly that, you know, once that seed of temptation is planted in us, then it will bring forth death ultimately this is why it's such an important issue we're not going to get to it this morning i wasn't sure how far we get with the chapter but um the the last verse of the chapter talks about pure religion and undefiled before god and the father is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world now what a statement that is in the current climate with coronavirus 
Look at the effort we're going to as a, as a society to remain unspotted from coronavirus. You know, the precautions we're taking place. And yet that is, a, I say only, but various reports I've heard, I'm sure you've heard different things, but it's only only 30% of those contracting this will die. Well, 100% of those that have a sin problem will die. The, the question, of course, is, you know, if you know Christ, then you are saved. Okay, so we don't have that eternal separation from God. But what will die in you spiritually if you allow temptation? And what lengths are you going to to protect yourselves? You know, people are going out with masks, whether they are or not effective is a, is a separate debate, you know, that everyone's having at the moment. But people are still going to great lengths to try and protect themselves. Social distancing. You know, what are we doing distancing ourselves from sin? Let me just, just take you through these last few comments on this idea of temptations. You know, the idea of temptations as referred to here is, is being carried away and enticed. That, that's what we're told. Uh, in this, uh, this, uh, this verse, uh, again, let me, uh, just read you again. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Uh, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away. Okay. That's the idea. Carried away and enticed. Now they're actually fishing metaphors that James uses again, another natural kind of, uh, example he uses to help us to understand. The idea of carrying away is to lure something out into the open. This is what temptation does. It lures us. And then the idea of in- being enticed, the idea is that of bait. Literally, it's a trap to catch prey. That's what Satan does with temptations. That's why those temptations are out there and, and they are so effective because they are something that is made to seem appealing and attractive. But interestingly, where does the bait come from? Well, we're told in this verse, it's our own perception, it's our own lusts. And why is it tempting? Well, because we allow it to be enticing because we don't have the right view of it. Okay, let me just put it this way. If you think about a beautiful but deadly flower, something like deadly nightshade or any other flower that you know can cause harm, you know, knowing it is deadly changes our perception of it and it loses attraction. You may be quite tempted to go and pick a nice flower on a nice sunny day. But if you knew it was poisonous, you wouldn't touch it. It changes your perception of it. You stay clear of it. Okay? Its beauty is suddenly seen in a very different light. Well, sin has distorted the good things that God has made so that we see them in a context that was never intended. And we haven't got the time this morning. You can expand that. I'm sure you can think in your own lives and your own hearts how sin distorts the things that God has made that are good in presenting them in a way that's not. Who is doing the luring? Well, we're told it's our own hearts. Ultimately, this is all down to our own sinful nature. It's of ourselves. You know, we are powerless to overcome this. But of course, in Christ, we can do all things. In Philippians 4.13, we're told that. Um, Proverbs 6, verse 20 to 29. Let me just read this to you, because again, I think this is is just an important verse uh, for us to understand. So uh, if you want to turn with me, please do so. Uh, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. Uh, through to verse 29 we just read this it says my son keep thy father's commandment and forsake not the law of thy mother bind them continually upon thine heart notice the issue here's is the heart and tie them about thy neck when thou goest it shall lead thee when thou sleepest it shall keep thee see it's talking about being kept in a particular way and when thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. That's what we need. We need those instructions that were given to us by godly parents or certainly by the word of God to play into our hearts and minds. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is light. 
and reproofs of instruction of the way of life to keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take her with, uh, to take thee with her eyelids. For by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread and the adulteress uh, will hunt for the precious life. And then these few verses serve us, 27 to 29. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Well, of course, we know the answer to that question. You can't play with fire, hold it, and not be burnt by it. And he says, can one go upon hot coals and not be, and his feet not be burnt? And in verse 29, so he that goeth to his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her shall not be innocent. You know, Job spoke of lust, uh, certainly in the physical sense of rooting out all of our increase. That's the danger. Uh, and it's not just in the physical lust. Lust can play out in all sorts of ways in our life. It can be uh, lusting for material uh, things, lusting for success, all sorts of ways this thing apply to us. But we have a real problem with lust in our culture and in our lives. You know, striving for something we don't have and, and wanting to have it now. We must have this and that. And, you know, uh, these things being presented in a way that is not God's best for us. So how do we ha- obtain victory? Well, firstly, don't be brought under the power of anything. Paul makes that point. You know, even by giving into it, even if it seems innocuous, don't play with fire. Always be mindful of God's design. Anything outside of God's design will bring harm. You, you're not going to find a, a, a way around this. God has set our boundaries very quickly. There's a great example in the Old Testament with the tribe of Dan. When the, the land was being uh, apportioned to the 12 tribes, the Dan were given a portion, which was a reasonable size, but they said, it's not enough, we want more. They weren't content with the boundaries that God had given them. And they cried out for more. And so they given a piece of land right at the top of Israel, northern Israel. And guess what? Dan are the first tribe to go into idolatry. There's a great lesson there. If you are not content with the boundaries that God sets in terms of your walk, your relationships, whatever it is, If you're not content with the boundaries that God has set, with the rules that God has given us in his word, then you will fall into idolatry. It's very simple. This is the process we referred to earlier. Okay, remember also um, that you are now part of Christ. Anything you do will affect the body. We are part of a body together as believers. Anything you do will affect us. Anything you do affects me. Anything I do affects you. We need to understand our responsibility to each other. I'm sure James, in his relationship with Jesus, recognized this family dynamic and how, you know, if one of you, I mean, you you know what it's like. One of you in the family is unhappy about something or grumpy. It affects everybody in the family, doesn't it? That's just on a a superficial level. But when it starts to become sin, when it's more deep-rooted, how much impact can it have without even people realizing sometimes? Unlawful intimate indulgence in whatever form brings personal harm. You know, we're told this very specifically in scripture. So we need to maintain our relationship with Christ. Okay, folks, I think that's a a good place to leave it for this morning. Um, We'll pick up from verse uh, 16 next week and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. In the next section, there's a great portion that, that just speaks about God's word and what a great antidote God's word is to all these things, all the problems, you know, to the the diverse temptations, the challenges we face, how God's word can be a great remedy to help us through that. How with temptation, again, God's word is that which we read Psalm 119, your word I've hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. Well, there's a great lesson there. Hide God's word in your heart and these things don't become a problem. They don't have the power to impact us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us, that you would care enough to give us these kind of instructions. Lord, we thank you for James, that given the experience he'd had, knowing that 
he spent so much of his life talking with you, just, just fellowshipping, uh, and yet not realizing who you were, to now come to that place of knowing how you are and seeing his insistence that we don't go and mess up this walk with you because of the foolishness of the things of this world which are all passing away. Oh, Lord, help us to, to get some of the heart that James had of just wanting now to spend time fellowshipping with you. Oh, Lord, how we can understand why James wanted to pray, how he wanted to spend time talking to you, the one he thought he'd known all that, that time and yet not really fully understood. Well, now, Lord, by your grace, we can know you. You are fully known to us and we can spend all our time in com constant communion with you, whether we're out and about, whether we're at home, whether we're doing anything, Lord, we can pray without ceasing. We can keep that relationship with you going. And Lord, we pray that you would sustain us and keep us walking closely with you, walking in the way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.